0: Welcome. Thanks for joining us today. We will to give a special welcome to you if this is your first time. Certainly hope it's not your last time. We would invite you to click on the digital connection card up here in the corner and just let us know who you are and maybe how we could pray for you. And if this is your spiritual home, we say welcome to you also. And again, we would invite you to use that connection card to let us know anything we might need to know. But we're so grateful that you found time to be with us this morning couple things we want to share with you, we had an amazing Mother's Day here in the house last week. We also want to share with you an exciting milestone that's coming up here for one of our members that we want to invite you to be a part of. Our good friend Harold Myers is going to be celebrating his 100th birthday in three weeks. And Harold is just an incredible man. And in fact, check out this video that was shown on Channel 3 TV out of Cleveland to help him uh, get some birthday cards.
1: Producer Monique says that Harold is her new favorite human being, so let's meet him. Turning 100 is a very special accomplishment that deserves a big celebration. Next month, Richland County native Harold Myers turns 100 years old. Our photojournalist, Craig Roberson, spoke with Harold and his grandson, Dan, ahead of this milestone day, and here's how they hope to celebrate 100 years. My name. Harold. And he has a story to tell. 1922. What month? June the 8th. So he's getting ready for a big celebration. He grew up. I was raised in Lexington, Ohio, small village. How small? Six kids in our uh, first grade. His family struggled through the Depression. So I was a little kid. I was 10 years old. If you asked Dad for a nickel for an ice cream cone, he didn't have it.
0: Then the war happened.
1: We didn't volunteer most over we were drafted.
0: He served our country proudly. And when he came back home...
1: I had a job at the Mansfield Tire and Rubber Company in the office.
0: And that's where he met his bride, Margaret.
1: We started dating and that went on for uh, uh, three years till we got married. And it's been going on now for 74 years. How do you make it through 74 years of marriage? If you have any confrontations with your wife, and there always going to be some. You can always wind up by saying, you know, honey, you're right. <laughs> that will solve a lot of issues. Let's get back to this celebration. What is it for? Today I'm 99. In three weeks I'll be 100. He doesn't look that old. Oh, he's got to be, you know, 75 or 80 or something like that. So it's always interesting for him to be like, no, I turn 100 next month. His
0: grandson, Dan.
1: Do I know what he's doing? Yeah, Partially. Trying to get 100 cards for his 100th birthday. They left the word out, card sending. The goal is definitely 100. Would I take 1,000, 500? Absolutely so. I mean, the, the goal is definitely 100, though, if we could make that happen. All right, so if you want to send Harold a card, we have the address on your screen right there, P.O. Box 310, Ontario, Ohio, 44862. He turns 100 on June 8th. I'm sure we'll put this up on the website, too. Yeah, if you didn't write it down, it will be on WKYC.com. I think we can do 100. In fact, I think we can do well over 100 for Harold. And you know what? I agree with you, Mo. He's one of my new favorites, too. (laughs) Like, Like, is that guy? First of all, he doesn't look anywhere close to 99. And he is sharp with it, quick. Let's do 110. Why not? Yeah.
0: So his grandson, Dan, was really helpful in connecting with some folks that could help tell Harold's story. And and if you'd like to be part of that celebration, the address to send your birthday card and good wishes to Harold Byers is right here in the worship notes. As we gather here for worship, We are encouraged by these kinds of uh, fun kingdom opportunities. We're continuing our series here called Witness, Come and See, Go and Tell. And part of where I've been the last number of weeks as we lean into this conversation is really trying to help set a mindset, if you will, a worldview of how we should operate. Last week we talked about on Mother's Day the idea of kindness and how kindness is seen through the hearts of our mothers that brought us into the world. And then as we think about taking our story into the world, and last week I shared, sometimes we may be the only Bible that people will encounter, and so how our witness is to people around us is so important. As we think about this crazy season that we continue to be in, uh, now we've moved through a global pandemic and through all the things that have come out of that into to now a serious season of uh, difficulties economically in our communities with uh, prices being at all-time highs. And so part of this, of being a witness to invite people to come and see and go and tell, is to the good life. I want to use a book this week called The Good Life that was authored by Pastor Derwin Gray, who pastors Transformation Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. But Derwin takes a look at the Sermon on the Mount, And the ideas that come out of that that Jesus wants to offer us. I mean, as we think about this time that we are in with the economic turmoil, then we all sort of are looking at each other going, oh my goodness, is this ever going to end? What's going to be the next thing that's going to fall? And over this season, it seems like it's almost tapping on three years now, we've talked about just how we think about the world, how we feel about it, our sense and emotions, if you will. And I want us to see today again to remind us that our happiness is actually it's a birthright that you have as a citizen of God's kingdom that comes to us because of what Jesus has done for us. And I want us to see, too, that our happiness isn't contingent upon what happens with the virus, even though it's coming back in its fourth variant, possibly. It isn't about what's going on in the economic realm with gas prices being off the chart and the cost of our food and just all the staples that we need to make life work. That it's not in that. That our happiness doesn't come out of who won the election or who lost the election. It's not contingent upon anything. The truth is it's actually dependent upon what Jesus has done for us. I want us to see that happiness is something that we can own, that we can actually possess because of someone who possesses us of what Jesus did for us on the cross. What I want to unpack today is some of the great insights that come out of the, what is the greatest sermon that was ever preached by the greatest pastor ever preached, and that was Jesus. And it, we call it the Sermon on the Mount, and it begins with these verses here called the Beatitudes. And we find it today in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. Jesus lays out eight different characteristics of what it means to be a blessed person teach you a little Greek this morning. The word blessed in Greek is makarios. Can you say that? Makarios. And it literally means happy. And so Jesus takes and unpacks eight different characteristics of what it means to be a citizen of his kingdom, what it means to be a person who inherits his grace that we take on through the faith that we have. And it's actually a state of being and happiness. Here in the Beatitudes, he tells us that the blessed or the happy are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs, he says, is the kingdom of heaven. And then it goes down through this whole list of characteristics. And what Jesus is saying here is he says, you see, I want to give you happiness. I want to give you so much happiness that's greater than any of your circumstances. And he wants us to understand that happiness is greater than where we find ourselves, in our surroundings and in our circumstance. A happiness is actually intrinsic to the life where we're called to live. So the way Jesus works as a great preacher is he basically wants to stimulate our thinking around the idea, do you want to be happy? Well, he wants us to see that true happiness comes in his kingdom, but it's not the kind of happiness that we are so used to. We've been conditioned to think that happiness is something, is like the essence of something. that It's like all the good things that are going to happen to us or have happened to us. But see, that's not it. What happiness really is for the Christian is where God wants to give us all that is good that makes us good for the world. And that's the idea of how it ties into our series of witness, this idea of what God has done in us. And we come and see what Jesus does. And then we, because of that ex- encounter and that experience, we go and tell the world and invite others to come and see with us. And when we look at the Beatitudes, this eight characteristics, we see that these things are reflect to us those people who are happy. And here it may be the idea that's an old theological term that we don't tend to use a lot in our culture today, but that we want to see that happy people are holy people. Now, what does holiness mean? Well, holy in one sense is to be set apart for a particular purpose, or in a way it means that, that by the grace of God, that he brings us into his family. That's why we're set apart. He brings us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light which puts us in in standing in receiving all of his grace and his mercy and his love and his compassion. And then with all that, and we'll just celebrate here in a couple of weeks, the coming of the Holy Spirit again through Pentecost, that it's about what he does in and through us. And sometimes, as I like to say, in spite of us. And so now through the Holy Spirit, he gets to live that all these things out through us as we're his hands and feet and we interact with people around us. And that's where we find that happiness is grounded. Maybe saying it this way, happiness is where I become good for the world, that you really truly become human with a certain sense of how things work as we think about just what we've talked about so far in the series. And in his book, he basically unpacks this idea that happy people are those who, he says, dance to the rhythm of God's grace. It's kind of a cool picture, isn't it? And I know many of us may not have the rhythm to dance, but it is beautiful that God equips us to do that. And to get this opportunity of inviting others into dancing with us as we bring witness to the world through our our perspective, through our compassion, and through our happiness in the right sort of way so that when others look at us, they say, I want to have what you have. I want to dance like you dance. So this idea that comes to us out of the Beatitudes is that merciful people are happy people, and the people who don't have happiness are also the ones that lack mercy. I mean, have you ever met anybody who lacks mercy that's really happy? I, I don't think any of us have. You want to say, "Hey, I want to hang out with that person because they don't have mercy. Uh, they're so fun to be around." I don't think so. So you see, what mercy becomes, and we know it's synonymous with the word grace, right? This unmerited gift that we get of life from God, that it's like a shining star in the heavens. You can see all all that's dark because of the star that shines brightest in the sky. And so God wants us to shine this kind of brightness with his mercy into the world in which we live. In fact, back here to the scripture, Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, Jesus says, blessed or happy are those that are merciful so they will be shown mercy. So this idea of being a merciful person means that number one, that loving God by loving people you're not supposed to love. Okay, so it's interesting. Our, our mission statement says as a church that we want to love God and love others with no limits. We say that all the time. But it's interesting too that we need to put it in the context of what that really means is that by loving God, we love people that maybe we're not supposed to love, people who would seem unlovable by some. Being merciful, being a person of mercy, means that we love God by loving the people around us that are difficult to love. And if we're honest, if you and I are honest together, there are people in our lives, whether we've labeled them culturally or whether we've labeled them politically or whatever it may be, we've labeled people in our souls. You know, we can say, "Nah, that's not the kind of person I want to love. I know that God tells me to do it. See, if we're a follower of Jesus, we need to be different in the world because in the world around us, we see it. We hear people that say, I don't like you, I don't love you. Two weeks ago when we talked about Mr. Rogers, that, that was one of his hallmark statements that made him so much different than everyone else around him as he would say to the people he encountered, I like you. And so the, here's the first point as we lean into this message, that we love God by loving people we're not supposed to love. And now, where do we get this from? Well, that's a great question. We actually stumbled a little bit into it last week when we talked about kindness. So I want to look at it again here, this passage that comes out of Luke chapter 10. And so let me give you the backdrop. Jesus is engaging a conversation with a guy that's a scribe. Now, a scribe was a certain sect within the Jewish tradition. He was a Sadducee or maybe a Pharisee. But this much we know, he was a scholar whose job it was to take the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, and he would then unpack it so that people would know how to live the Torah and how to bring it back into their community and then eventually usher in the coming of the Messiah, so this scribe is having a conversation with Jesus because he knows that Jesus is his rabbi who's got a lot of following around him. And so, and so what's interesting is here, this the scribe wants to try to catch Jesus in a trap. So let's take a look here. He says, then an expert in the law stood up to test him. Now, what's interesting there, real quick, the Greek word for the word test means that it's with evil intentions. And so it's sort of interesting. Go ahead, try to do something with evil intentions towards Jesus, yeah, you're not going to win, are you? So uh, continuing here, testing Jesus, he says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he asked him. How do you read it, he answered. Love your Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So we need to pause and get some context of the scripture. You see, the Jewish people, they took Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, and then Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 through 19, and they basically smashed them together to create what's called the Shema. The Shema says, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So anyone who is a faithful Jew, and even today, they pray this prayer three times a day. Love God, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so Jesus says, you've answered correctly, he told him. Do this and you will live. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's saying this is what life is. Life is their response to God's grace and to God's mercy. And that God captures you so much that you end up loving God with all your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength. And then you love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so being a merciful person then is the second point this morning is that every human being is your neighbor. Every human being. And so the scribe says here in verse 29, wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So let's take a moment here and get the context. Let's think about going back to where they are standing right there, and let's walk in the sandals of that particular guy, the scribe. Now, either he was a Pharisee or a Sadducee, but this much we know, he was Jewish. And so as a Jewish man, let me ask you, how would you feel about non-Jews? Because in that time, in that context, for a Jewish person, your neighbor would have been Jewish. It's just is the way it worked. I mean, how would you feel about people who were non-Jews or what would they call Gentiles? If you're a Jewish person, there's a lot of emotion in this. There's a lot of emotion in how you feel about people who are non-Jews. Think about it. For 400 years, your people were held in slavery by a group of Gentiles. We call those folks the Egyptians. And then God frees you through an amazing miracle that we call the Passover And then there's all these other Gentiles that you encounter through the history of your journey uh, to uh, this day. And yet in the desert, you were dealt with all sorts of uh, difficulty. Because once they got to the promised land, then another great uh, Gentile group comes along, the Babylonians. And we have the Babylonian captivity. And that takes Israel out for a long time. And then when they finally get back to the promised land that God had promised Abraham, and they're being occupied and being oppressed, and they're being dominated by Romans, which is another Gentile group, right? So how would you feel about those that are non-Jews? Well, I think it'd be like saying that you're gonna love people who have basically terrorized and wanted to stamp out your people and their whole existence. Before we get too angry with this religious scholar, let's think about the pain of his life, the pain of the past that he's carrying all the way into the present. And it's important that we know that this pain exists, but we don't allow that pain to keep us from loving people. Again, back to Matthew 5:44 and 45, he says, But I say bless those who persecute you and to love your enemies. Because you see, when we love our enemies, because that's how God loves us, it may not prevent our enemies from hating us, but it will prevent us from hating them. And that's really what it's all about. So let me ask you this question. He says, Who is your neighbor? You know what? You and I will never treat people above the label that we place them on. And that's what Jesus said. He says, love God with all your heart and mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what's interesting is he doesn't qualify it. He doesn't put a label on it. You and I, we're the ones that put labels on people. We're the one that brings the context of our, just our misunderstanding sometimes of who people are and what they're all about. And that sometimes, and if not most of the time, those labels paint a picture of reality that tells us if we should love them or if we should not love them. We'll never treat someone above the label that we've put upon them. I think that's really important for us to see. And that's why when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, because he knows and wants us to understand that the whole world is our neighbor. So let me go to a little meddling here. Let me ask you this question. What labels have you put on people that have colored the way you look at them and have caused you to withhold your love? So when you and I withhold our love, we're basically withholding our humanity and we're actually stopping the development of all of us as human beings. You see, the whole point of this idea of salvation is the restoration of the Imago Dei, that idea of who we are as God created us. You see, the image of God is in each of us, and and that image of God is for each of us to become conformed, Paul says, to the image of Jesus Christ. That loving people does not mean that you have to agree with them to love them. It's clear that Jesus didn't agree with us in our sin, But yet, he gave the ultimate sacrifice where he loved us to the point of going to the cross. He loved us out of the tomb. And so the question is, what labels have we put on people? What political labels or what social labels or what ethnic labels? Well, you see, Jesus wants to give you a new label. He wants to give each of us a new label. He wants us to say neighbor. So to be merciful here in our third point today is we need to cross ethnic, cultural, and religious barriers to help hurting people just the way that Jesus did. Now, as we continue the story, Jesus takes it to the next level in his incredible way of teaching. He gives an example of what it means to be merciful, what it looks like to be truly human, and what it looks like to experience that kind of happiness that God brings. We look here in Luke chapter 10, verse 30. It says, Jesus took up the question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. Now, it's interesting just to give some context that Jesus is helping them really understand. He says, from Jerusalem to Jericho, that's about 17 miles. Or it's about from Mansfield, where I'm at right now, down to the town of Butler on the bike trail, because it's about what it is. And it's about a 3,000 foot descent from one end to the other. So it's a little bit of a downhill walk. And according to Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, this trail was called the Bloody Way. It's because it's where people got robbed and hurt. And so it was very well known in that time. And to continue here, it says, and they stripped him. Now we know that the man was Jewish because Jesus doesn't identify him as a non-Jew. He says, they stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him passed on the other side. You see, at this point, and again, context is everything, the audience that Jesus is speaking to would have been sort of flipping out. They would have been really having a hard time. They would have been like, hold on. They would have said, wait a minute, this is not going the way that it's supposed to go. Because you see in Jewish culture and in Jewish context, the priest stands in between God and man, right? The Levite is like the worship leader and he leads in the songs. Now, here's the one thing that we know from this, is that the priest and the Levite were coming down from Jerusalem, the scripture says. They had already gone to temple and done their sacrifices. So at this point, their touching a corpse would have not made them unclean because they had already done their ritual purity sacrifices. As you see in the Jewish temple, that's where heaven and earth are meeting. There was worship there, there was praise, there's a forgiveness of sins because of the sacrifice, there was offering that was made. There was singing again, and it was, and it was an amazing worship experience. And imagine, as these guys are leaving, is like, man, that was an amazing worship service. Uh, the song that was sung the, the, you know, just knocked it out of the park. The people were crying, and, and we were worshiping, and, and then the other says, yeah, I was preaching. It was great. And then they're walking along, and they see a man half dead, and they look at him and go, yeah, man, that worship song was incredible. It was amazing, which reminds us of why we worship. Because, you see, we gather to worship so that we can love God, that that's the reflection of loving God, that we can sing all the songs we want to sing, and we can pray our prayers, we can gather on Sunday morning, we can know all the theology we want to know, we can know doctrine, but at the same time, if we don't love and we have mercy, uh, that means that we've missed it altogether. And so the ultimate test of who we are, the ultimate test of our theology, of our witness, The ultimate display, if you will, of the understanding of God's grace and his mercy is that we have to step across into where people's pains are and become a healing balm, if you will. And as we continue here, Jesus, he's got a captive audience. They're paying attention. And then he comes in verse 33 and says what? But a Samaritan. Now, what's interesting is whenever you see this word but in the scriptures as you read along, you gotta pause for a moment and get ready because something big's about to happen. You see, we need to be remember that God works in those moments. So again he says, but a Samaritan on his journey came up to him. And so at this point, the Jewish people would have lost it as they were listening to Jesus. They were really gonna be struggling. Because they're gonna hear that word Samaritan, they're gonna go, What? Are you kidding me? And the ethnic tension of the day, the the racial hatred and the prejudice and the, the bigotry and the cultural differences between Jews and Samaritans, it was a chasm. It was fierce. It was ugly, and it was over 700 years of prejudice and feud. So what happened? In 722 BC, the Samaritans were developed or they came into existence because they were basically half Jewish and half Gentile. It came about because of the resettlement policies that took place during one of the exiles. They had developed their own temple there in that region and the Jews worshiped in Jerusalem. They had developed their own rival religious text. They had called them the Samaritan Pentateuch. And so there was this ethnic and religious and cultural barriers for 700 years that they chose not to love each other. So let me do a little meddling here. What barriers are you allowing from preventing you to love your neighbor? What kind of ethnic feuds or what kind of misunderstandings? Because the thing we need to see, and this is the thing we have to understand, is the only way the cycle of violence and the cycle of vengeance stops is that there becomes a cycle of grace and a cycle of mercy and then a cycle of compassion. You see, that's why Jesus stepped into time. That's why he became human. As I like to say, he took on flesh and moved into our neighborhood. He came to teach us what it was to be loving and how to show mercy. Again, it says here in verse 33, but a Samaritan on his journey came to him and when he saw the man he had compassion. He didn't say and he saw a Jewish man or he didn't say he saw a political opponent or he didn't say he saw someone with religious differences. Now it says he saw a man, just that simple. So in other words, what did he see? He saw someone who was made in the image and likeness of God. The only thing that he had in common with the Jewish man is their common humanity. You know what, that's enough for us to love. It's that simple. And what's interesting here is this word compassion means to suffer with. Really what it means here is that when the Samaritan saw the Jewish man on the side of the road, he didn't see an enemy, he didn't see a political opponent, he saw somebody and said, oh my God, if that was me, what would I want? What justice means is if it's broke, I want to see it fixed. If it's hurt, I want to see it healed. Justice means this, compassion means this, mercy means this, that even though The problem is not mine. I'm going to engage to become a solution. That's what it means to love your neighbor as you love yourself. You see, it's an act of uncommon mercy and that brings incredible happiness out of all of us. Now the writer of Hebrews chapter two, verse nine says this, but we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for short time so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone. See, we need to be reminded of this. If Jesus tasted death for everyone, then surely we can love everyone. And so what I mean by that is to love someone does not mean I have to agree with them, but to love someone means I have to see them as being in the image of God, to see God in them. And if God can redeem me, if God can rescue me, if God can love me, if God can show his mercy to me, then I love and and I'm merciful to those around me that we are crowned with glory and honor because of what Jesus did for us, he suffered death. So again, as we think about the incarnation of Jesus coming into flesh and and walking amongst us, this is one of the texts where we see God stepping down from his realm in heaven as the king of kings into the realm of man so that man and women could be sons and daughters of the great king. That's huge. And, And then this fourth point, being a merciful person means this, that you're willing to count the cost of loving your neighbor. You see, being a merciful person means that you're willing to count the cost for your neighbor. And this is by far the most challenging aspect of what it means to understand God's grace because it's going to cost you something to love people you're not supposed to love. Again, Luke says, verse 34, He went over to him and bandaged his wounds up, pouring out olive oil and wine. Now, this much I know, bandages cost a lot of money. Olive oil keeps the wound soft and wine is a disinfectant. It keeps infection away. Bandages, olive oil, and wine cost... This guy some money. And he continues and says, then he put him on his own animal, and his own animal cost money. And then he brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. Get some context here. Two denarii is two weeks worth of working wages. And then the Samaritan says, When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever you spend. And so this idea is we want to bring witness to the world to come and see and go and tell that we need to see that we have to love across ethnic boundaries. We have to love across religious barriers. and We have to love across those differences that are culturally dividing us, that it's going to cost us something. What I also want to say here is not only did it cost the Samaritan to spend money, but it also cost him relationally with his people. Can you imagine him going back to his people in Samaria and talking to his buddies and to all of his Samaritan friends and telling them this story? It would really put him in a difficult place. So we know that it it cost this Samaritan, we know it cost him relationships. To be able to love like this, to show mercy, it's going to cost you as well. Here's the good news. Whatever you spend, God's going to give it back a hundredfold. He's going to give it back to you relationally. He's going to build into your humanity with joy, into your Christ-likeness. You're going to become the person who you were meant to be. You'll begin to shine like a star in a dark heaven, as we said before. Why? Because Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they will find mercy. And the rest of the scripture says this, and I love how Jesus does this. He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who had fallen into the hands of the robbers? Well, the religious scholar says what? The one who showed mercy to him. He said, then Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Okay, it's just that simple. Go and do likewise. Yeah, that's simple, right? It is simple and yet it is incredibly hard. What makes it hard? Well, it's because of our fears and our insecurities of who we are. And that's why we have to lean into who God is because of his grace and his mercy is because of God's grace and God's mercy is greater than all these things. That if we lead with mercy and compassion through the way of Jesus as he's led us with his mercy and compassion, we can do all sorts of things. Now, here's what's the truest part of this story and this is where we all fall into it, that this story is about us, that you and I are the man that has been stripped and we've been beaten and we've been bloodied and we've been robbed and we're laying there half naked on the side of the road and you and I have been stripped of our dignity by what Satan has done to us, that we've been robbed by our God-given destiny by saying we have been beaten down and we've been torn down and we've been roughed up and we're laying on the side of the road and we're bloodied and here's the thing, we can't help ourselves. We can't rescue ourselves, we can't fix ourselves. But that's the beauty of this story. And so we see that Jesus is the Samaritan, and he shows up, and even though he was rejected, he was counted out, he comes and he leans in and brings us uh, restoration, brings us wholeness. Because you know what Jesus did when he saw us lying on the side of the road? He didn't just walk by, you know what he did? He jumped on a cross and he, he took it for us. You know what he did, he jumped on a cross, and he bandaged us with his blood. And you know what he did? He poured wine, which is his blood, to forgive our sins, to make us new, to restore our dignity, to remove our shame. He says, as far as the east is from the west, he has thrown our sin into the sea of God. That's a beautiful thing, that's a good thing, that's an amazing thing to think about, the Father's forgotten memory. And you know what he did? He took the oil of the Holy Spirit and then he seals us. And when we call on the Spirit's name, he will fill us to become who we are created to be, and that is the resembling of Jesus Christ. And then it's what's cool here is the story isn't over yet. Just like the Good Samaritan told the Jewish man, I'm going to put you in the end, Jesus tells us, my daddy, my father, my Abba has got a house with many, many rooms. And this Jesus who went to the cross, this Jesus who walked out of the tomb, this Jesus who ascended into heaven and is right now at the right hand of the Father, he's praying for us, the scriptures tell us. This Jesus, as we know, is one day coming back, and he's going to be establishing a new heaven and a new earth, and there is going to be plenty of room in his Father's mansion. As as we think about in this series, as we are a witness to come and see and then go and tell, our lives have to be impacted because of what he's done. And so let's pray. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would be with us this day and guide us and strengthen us. We thank you for the promise of your scriptures, and we thank you for this amazing story to remind us of what you've done for us. We pray it in your strong name. Amen.